Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 19 to 30 this morning. Acts chapter 11, 19 to 30. Looks like we're mostly landing, so let me open up with a word of prayer. <coughs> Father, we come before you this morning grateful to sing your praises and to be able to open your word. And Lord, while there are sickness and strife on our prayer list, I pray uh, that your hand would be upon everyone that is here and everyone that is at home. And Lord, for the needs of the many, I pray that they would lean into you. And as we uh, dive into your word today, Lord, with what uh, Luke has to say to us about the church in Antioch. I pray that we would be uh, people who uh, worship in the way that they did and uh, were uh, essential for the mission of, of your kingdom uh, the way that they were. Lord, as we uh, look at this, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to our part of that mission and would move our hearts to, to be active in that, Lord. We do love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. All right, so um, one thing that you may have noticed is a little bit different with your worship guide this morning is um, I have included a map. Did you guys all get a map this morning? All right. I thought the map would be uh, helpful uh, as we take a look at our passage this morning to get a better understanding of all the different areas that Luke is going to mention in uh, verses 19 uh, to 30. Over the last several weeks, uh, we have seen the gospel uh, expanding out from Jerusalem. And uh, we see this as a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made in Acts 1, verse 8, where he talked about how uh, the apostles would be witnesses, his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And uh, in Acts chapter 8, we saw that the, the major catalyst that is causing this gospel expansion came in the form of persecution. All right, so the church has lost uh, its place in the eyes of the people. And there was a while there that the people had a positive outlook on the church. And so the religious leaders wouldn't touch it. And now we have seen that, that the tide of public opinion changed. And they came after the church uh, viciously. And we see that a majority of the church is driven out of Jerusalem as they fear for their freedom, as they fear for their very lives, because uh, some of them were thrown in jail, some of them were murdered. Uh, they went into the surrounding areas, and as they went, they took the message of salvation with them as they, as they left. All right, And so from this persecution, we've witnessed the conversion of many people over the last three chapters in the book of Acts. In chapter 8, we saw the gospel go to the Samaritans, and we saw a major 
work of the Spirit there. We saw a lot of people come to faith there. And we also saw uh, the salvation of an Ethiopian eunuch who church history tells us once he was saved and went back to his people, he became a missionary there and won many people to faith after going back to his home. In Acts chapter 9, we saw Saul, who was the major persecutor of the church. We saw Jesus confront him on his way to Damascus to do more persecution. And after he comes to faith, we see that he has reached out to all these people that have been, uh, he's been in league with, and they constantly try to kill him because he is arguing for Jesus as the Messiah. And when things break down at this point in time with the Jews, they always resort to violence at this point. And so uh, in Acts chapter 9, this is going to come up today, um, he made his way back to Tarsus, which is his hometown. The, the religious leaders of the church saw that he was in danger in Caesarea, and so they got him out of there and sent him home. All right, so that's where he is when we're reading this uh, this morning. And then in Acts chapter 10, we witnessed uh, the gospel, which was expanding further north. It went up to Caesarea, and there Peter shares the gospel with a Roman centurion named Cornelius and his family. And we get to see, uh, through that interaction, we get to see the Holy Spirit fall upon the Gentiles. And now the Gentiles are a part of the people of God, uh, which is good news for us because we're all Gentiles. And so this morning, we're going to see it ripple even further. All right, the gospel is still expanding. It's still going further north uh, as a group of unknown disciples move in all directions. Right, so it's doing this out of Jerusalem. And we see them take the gospel with them as they go. So in Acts 11, 19 through 30, we're going to read about how the church in Antioch was established. All right, so let's read all, through all that. Um, and then as you have your map in front of you, when you see some of these names pop up, take a look. Everything that you need to be aware of is over on this side of the map, all right, on your right-hand side, okay? So as these names pop up, look and see what you can find there. Uh, so it says, Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed uh, turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. A large number of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. 
Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. So in verse 19, Luke reminds us that the gospel expansion that we're seeing here is the same as a result of that same persecution that we experienced in Acts chapter 8. From that point uh, to this passage in Acts, we're looking at somewhere, and the opinions on it vary, but somewhere between 8 and 11 years. All right, so 8 and 11, or up to 11 years have passed from Acts chapter 8 to Acts chapter 11. And in that time, the gospel has been slowly making its way north. So some of the people who were fleeing persecution uh, went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And if you look at the map, you can find most of those names fairly easily. Uh, you've got Cyprus is the, uh, the island off of the coast of Syria over here. So that's Cyprus. Uh, Cyrene is down at the northern tip of Africa. All right, so if you're looking for that, it's down here. And uh, Antioch is north where you see, beside where you see the word Syria on the map. And to give a little bit of scale, Antioch is about 300 miles from Jerusalem. All right, so that's the distance that we're looking at. Phoenicia isn't on the map, uh, but it's that whole coastal region beside the word Syria. So as it goes up from Damascus all the way up to Antioch, that whole coastal area of Syria is what was considered Phoenicia. And so it's all the way up along the Mediterranean Sea there. And so according to verse 19, some of the people who fled Jerusalem focused their evangelistic efforts only on the Jews that were living in these areas. All right, Some of them have just this mindset that the gospel is still first for the Jews, and then it goes to the Gentiles, which Paul will talk about later on uh, in the New Testament. It is first for the Jews and then to the Gentiles. But at this point, we have seen where the Gentiles are included into the people of God. And so it's more than okay for people to be sharing their faith with the Gentiles. And some people uh, who had gone to Cyprus and Cyrene made it a point to share the gospel with the Greeks who were in Antioch. Right? And I, I'm not sure how much you know about the church in Antioch, but this is a big deal for the kingdom of God. All right? The church in Antioch is a big deal. Um, and the reason for that is because Antioch was a very large city. And I, I've seen estimates anywhere from 100,000 people to 300,000 people. One resource that I looked at said 500,000 people all call Antioch home. So it's no small place. And it's a central place for international commerce. All right, because of its location, you've got people from Egypt, Greece, Asia Minor, Italy, and Mesopotamia. They all make their way to Antioch to do business because it had major roadways going north, east, and south. And then if you, when you see it on there, it's roughly 30 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. And so people ship their goods there, they do commerce there in the city, and then that commerce goes north, east, and south, all based in Antioch. And so this makes Antioch a great place for the church. 
right? There's tons of people. There's a lot of different cultures. It's a melting pot. And as we see through the book of Acts, the church in Antioch is going to be a major launching point for the missionary journeys they're going to follow. All right, I wrote those down in your worship guide. Uh, and in Acts 13, we're also going to see that several prominent church leaders are stationed in Antioch, right? So everybody sees the importance of this as the base for the Gentile mission. And so the significance of this church cannot be overlooked or overstated. But what's amazing about the fact that this church has been established is that we're not even given the names of the people that originally took the message of the gospel there. Right? This church is huge throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And in verses 19 and 20, Luke simply states that as the result of persecution that started because of Stephen, those who had been scattered made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And then some men, right? That's all it says is some men from Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and began speaking the gospel to the Greeks there as well. Now, you would think that we would have some information about the people who traveled to this very influential church and established that, but all that we know about them is that they fled persecution, and as they went, they took the gospel there. Right? That's all we know. And because of their faithfulness, the Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And so we have ordinary people. right? If, the, if these were big names in the church, we would have gotten those names. Luke would have mentioned those names. But ordinary people just like us planted the most influential church in the New Testament. This wasn't Peter or Barnabas or Saul, right? It's no-name folks who have a calling by God to move forward, to take the gospel to the nations as was stated in the Great Commission, and they make a huge impact for the kingdom of God. They did this in a place that was well known for its pagan worship. All right, there's, again, this is a melting pot of culture. So you've got different religions coming from different parts of the world. You've got uh, the cult of Artemis and Apollo is thriving in Antioch. All right, And then there are temples there and nearby that actively practice ritual prostitution. So this place, it's not in the middle of the Bible Belt. Okay, You're not going to find this in places where the gospel has pervaded and yet they wade into the darkness there in that city and they make a huge impact. Right? What that means for us is that we cannot mistake ourselves as insignificant. All right? We may not be big-name people, but we cannot assume that our ministry and that our efforts for the kingdom of God have no impact. Right? You never know how God might use your evangelism to your family, to your co-workers, to your neighbors, to wherever that God calls you to be, you can never assume that it means nothing and that will have no impact. Right? We don't know these people's names. 
You may never know how significant you simply sharing your testimony about the things that God has done for you and how he has changed your life. You never know how that might impact the life of the person that you're sharing it with. Right? These people were unknown completely. And yet they shook the modern world for the gospel because of all that they would say and do in Antioch. You know, maybe, maybe there's somebody here whose name will echo through church history the way that maybe Billy Graham's does or the way that a Saul or Barnabas does. Maybe that will happen. But the reality is, like, if the Lord tarries and we're still around a thousand years from now, most of the people are not going to remember our name. Right? I mean, most people are not going to be remembered. But the wonderful thing is that the Lord primarily uses the efforts of unnamed people to impact his kingdom. Right? Sure, we get some of those big names, but for the most part, all of this missionary effort is done by people we never hear of and never know again. And we can have that same impact. We cannot neglect the areas of ministry that God has called us to, both within the walls of this church and as we go from this place to all the different things that God has called us to. Right? We may think of ourselves as insignificant, but our impact could be felt throughout the world. We don't know. In verse 22, the efforts of these unnamed people they make their way back to Jerusalem. All right, so the leaders hear about all that's going on in Antioch and they want to know what's happening. And so they send out Barnabas to look into what's happening. And Barnabas was a really good choice for this for several reasons. All right, first off, he was originally uh, a Cyprian by birth. All right, he was a Cyprian Jew, uh, like some of the people who had taken the gospel to Antioch. All right, so the people from Cyprus and Cyrene, he is among those people. And so right off the bat, he's got a connection to some of the people who started this church. So there's a relation, potential relationship there off the bat. Secondly, because Barnabas wasn't originally from Jerusalem, his perspective of the church would have been broader than the believers who had never stepped foot outside of Judea. So he can look at this melting pot of culture in Antioch and he can view at that through a different lens than someone who had never been outside of Jerusalem or the surrounding area there. And third, Barnabas has the type of personality that this trip needed. All right, I love what Luke says about Barnabas's reaction to what he finds when he gets to Antioch. When he's there, it says, Barnabas saw the grace of God on the church there in Antioch, and he encourages them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. Now, if you've been to a church for more than 15 minutes, you know that there's no such thing as a perfect church, right? The, the people in Antioch are not doing this perfectly because nobody can do it perfectly. And when, with the length of time that Barnabas had been spending with the the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, he could have shown up and he could have informed the believers there that, that this is not how the church runs in Jerusalem. Right, that's not how we do it. That's not how it's always been done. Right? He could have told them, I appreciate your efforts, but you're doing it wrong. 
And he could have come in and been completely critical of everything that they were doing. He could have shown up and doused the fire of the Holy Spirit that was present in that place if he had the wrong attitude. And yet, he shows up and he sees the grace of God on the church in Antioch. Do you know why he sees the grace of God on the church in Antioch? Because he's the type of person who looks for it. He's the type of person who looks for the grace of God that's going on in your life or in your church's life. And when he sees it, he encourages people with it. He speaks to people about it. And the, the church flourishes because of it. All right, He's the type of person that sees the good in all that's going on. And he mentions it and he encourages them with it. The church is full of all kinds of people. Right? That you've got your people who have the optimistic outlook on life. You have the people who are somewhat neutral, like this could be good, this could be bad. We'll see how it goes. And then you have the pessimistic people, right? The people that no matter how good or bad things are going, it's always bad, right? These are the realists, the so-called realists that, you know, it's just people that are pretending to be real, but in reality, it's a glass half empty type of outlook right and when you have different types of ministries going out new things that are going on new things that are going on within the church or within the people of the church new believers that are going out and trying to figure out what the direction of their faith looks like in their life you need somebody like Barnabas encouraging them to take the steps that God is calling them to take right if you've got that this ain't how we always done it people or you got the like that's great that's a nice effort but this is how you really should be doing it then we can douse the work of the holy spirit very quickly and so barnabas was good for this role because it says that he was a good man who was full of the holy spirit and faith and when he arrives he's glad that he's there because he looks around and sees all that the Holy Spirit is doing among the church in Antioch. And he sees the grace of God among those people. He sees good stuff there. And then when he gets there and gets establishes, he, encourage, he encourages the people of the church. And then he runs off to Sar Tarsus to find Paul or Saul. He, he's not Paul yet. He will be Paul soon. Uh, but Saul has been in Tarsus since Acts chapter 9. Right? So he argues with the Hellenists. He argues with the people in the synagogues, wrangles with them about Jesus as the Messiah. And as I said, when things go bad, they try to kill him. And so the church wanted him out of there and safe. And so they sent him home. And so he's been in Tarsus for several years at this point. And when Barnabas sees this mixed group of believers at Antioch, he makes a 100-plus mile journey from Antioch to Tarsus in order to find Saul. Now, he doesn't know where Saul is in Tarsus, but he goes to Tarsus 100-plus miles and brings him back to teach and encourage the people at Antioch. And it doesn't say why he chose to do that. I mean, we got to think that educating the people in Antioch is going to be no small task, right? If, there's, if the church has any kind of uh, people at all to it, one person can't educate an entire city's worth of new believers. 
And so he needs help. But why would he go all the way to Tarsus to find Saul? And we're not told. Uh, Some commentators speculate that it might be because Saul was a better teacher, right? You know, like we all have giftings. And Barnabas was a really good encourager, but he might not be quite as well versed in the things of the law, the things that Jesus has shared with Saul. And so he may have gone just simply because Saul was a better teacher than Barnabas was. Um, Some think that it might be specifically because Saul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Right, so this is your calling, and here we have Gentiles that need to be edified and encouraged, and so he's going to go up and get them, get Saul. But we don't know exactly what motivated that long journey to bring Saul back to Antioch, but when they arrived, they spent an entire year teaching and educating the church in Antioch so that people could understand what God expected of them. And the church at Antioch is amazing because we see probably for the first time in any significant way, you've got Jewish believers and Gentile believers both being educated together in the ways of God. We see a a mingling of two people who, two people groups who would have been considered enemies for a long, long time are now, because of the gospel, you see them coming together and learning together about what it means to be the people of God. So you have a significant change in atmosphere from this church to the church back in Jerusalem. Right? This church is understanding that we coexist together and we're going to take this message of the gospel from this international center of commerce and we're going to watch as the gospel pervades the surrounding world because of what the church there is going to do. And it's awesome. It's so awesome, in fact, that the efforts of this have been noticed by the other people in Antioch, right? Luke tells us that it was here in Antioch that the people first started calling the disciples Christians. Now, this isn't something that the Christians were saying about themselves, because if you go throughout the New Testament, I think the word Christian is mentioned twice other than this, throughout the entire New Testament. So they're still talking to each other about brothers and sisters. They're talking to each other about disciples and apostles and all of that. No one in the church is calling themselves a Christian. And so what's happening here is that the, the name Jesus is being proclaimed so much, and they're tying that in with the title of Christ so often that the people in Antioch are now referring to them as Christians, right? So they're not going to have any understanding that Christ is not a last name, right? All they keep hearing about is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Christ. And so, I mean, I've met people who thought that Christ was Jesus's last name. But in reality, it's a position. It's a title, right? Christ is the Greek way of saying Messiah, And so they don't understand that that's not Jesus Christ, that's Jesus the Messiah. But because the people in Antioch are being educated and talking about Jesus so much that the people around them have started recognizing them as those that follow the Christ. They have no idea what that means, but it made such an impact on the people around them that they got the title Christian because of how much they're talking about and sharing about Jesus. And that's awesome. Nobody's going to say amen to that, okay. Um, 
That's all right. That's all right. I'll get I'll get uh, Isaac back in here. We'll get it taken care of. It's fine. <laughs> so we see this massive impact that the church is having in Antioch, and it is such a new and fledgling church that what we see next in the passage is also amazing, right? So finally, in the last part of the passage this morning, the church in Antioch hears about a coming famine that is uh, prophesied about by Agabus, right? He comes, he's a uh, prophet from Jerusalem that has come to, I guess it's up, to Antioch, and he is prophesying about a famine that is going to take place throughout the Roman world. And because of their close connection together and what they see in the responsibility of the church in Christ, you've got this new fledgling church who's no more than what, a year and some change old, are gathering together. It says as much as each believer is capable, they gather together a gift to send back to the elders of the church in Jerusalem through Barnabas and Saul. All right, so if you hear about this famine that's going to rock the Roman world, it's human nature to think about what about us? How is this going to impact us? And what they wanted to do is they wanted to make sure that the church in Jerusalem was well taken care of. And so they did everything that they could. Each individual believer did as much as they could. They gathered that money up and they sent that to the church in Jerusalem. So what do we do with this, though? Right. We're not in Antioch. Right. We're at Oak Grove. So how does this impact how we look at our part of the mission of God? What do we do with what we see here in these unnamed people taking the gospel to Antioch? How do we respond? Well, there's several things in here that we can do to ensure that the kingdom of God is impacted through our worship. Right. Number one, we can be faithful with our part of the mission that God has called us to. Now, over the years, I have stated several times that God created you to be who you are. He gave you your interests. He gave you your skill set. He gave you your spiritual gifts, all of that to impact the kingdom. He's also, we're going to find in Acts 17, we haven't gotten there yet, but it says that he appoints everyone to live where they live, when they live, so that God might not be far from any of them. All right, so you have a skill set, you have interests, you have things that God has equipped you with so that you can go into the place that he has providentially placed you so that you can impact people for the kingdom of God. Right? We don't, we don't have to go all the way around the world to find people that need to hear the gospel. We can simply go into our living rooms for some of us. We can simply go to our places of work for some of us. We can go to some of the places where we like to go play and, and hang out. Right? I, I've mentioned this numerous times. Like Whatever you like to do, do it with gospel intentionality. Right? Nobody's telling you that you have to change all of that stuff if what you like to do isn't inherently sinful. If it is inherently sinful, you can't do that. But as long as what you enjoy doing is something that you can invite a non-believer to do beside you, you should be doing that and then in the process sharing your faith with those people. 
Right? This is what the people did in Antioch. They experienced persecution. Their life situation changed in a significant way. And they thought about, as I go from this place, I have a commission from the Lord that says I am to make disciples of all nation and nations. And as I go, I am going to share the gospel in that process. And you in the same way have that same commission. And you may not have to have this big, significant life change that these church planners in Antioch did, but you have the opportunity to impact your little region of God's kingdom for the church. Right? People can come to faith based solely on your willingness to share the gospel with them, to put yourself out there, to maybe possibly experience your own version of persecution so that people see that the gospel is worth it. So number one, be faithful with your part of the mission that God has called you to. Number two, be like Barnabas. Be like Barnabas. Barnabas, every time he shows up on the page, he's encouraging someone. He, it talks about how good of a man he is. It talks about how full of the Holy Spirit he is. Be like Barnabas. Be someone who encourages people all, all the time. Right? When you look at someone, take the time, instead of being critical and, being, and trying to look for all the ways that they're failing in their relationship with God, look at that and see where you can see evidences of God's grace in their life. Right? Sometimes we need to be corrected. But if all we're doing is going through life looking for ways to correct other people, that is a sour disposition. Right? Barnabas was looking for ways all the time. How can I encourage you? How can I lift you up in the Lord? How can I be someone that you are glad to see coming? Right? Have you ever had people in the church, you see them walking towards you and go, oh boy, here we go again. Right? Barnabas was not like that. Barnabas was someone that when they saw them coming, you were like, it's Barnabas, yes! I'm so happy to see Barnabas. Why? Because Barnabas makes me feel good about me. Barnabas sees the ways that I have changed. Not, the, not, not who I used to be and not who I'm failing to be right now because we're all failing in our walk with God. Okay? Like, if you look hard enough, you're going to find fault in everybody. But Barnabas made it a point to find what was good. He made it a point to find where God was changing you and making you into a more Christ-like follower. Right, so be like Barnabas. Be someone who is encouraging, who is known as a good person, who is full of the Holy Spirit, who you know when they show up, things are about to get better. Be someone like that. And lastly, live generously. All right, live generously. We see a, a fledgling church that probably didn't have a whole lot of resources. They saw a need. Right? And this wasn't even a need that was present at the time. This was a prophesied need. So a, a foretold need in the future. And they did everything in their power to make sure that they met that need. All right? And to do that, that means that they're going to have to be, live sacrificial. That means that they're going to have to come together as a group to be forthcoming with their resources. And we all have resources, whether we have money or time or talent. I call it time, talent, and treasure, right? You've got time. Everybody's got the same amount of time. You might not have all the same amount of money, but 
you know, when it's necessary, give what you can. And then you have your talents. You've got things that God has gifted you with that need to be open-handed with the rest of the church so that when needs show up, we can help meet those needs. Right? Whatever that might be. It's going to look different for each person. It's going to look different for each season. Right? I might not have as much time in this season of my life as you do. I might not have as much money in this season of, in my life as you do. And most of you probably have more talent than I do across the board. And so there's not much I can do about that, right? God has given me what he's given me, all right? But the idea is that we would hold all of that open-handed. And so when a need shows up in the church, when we have an opportunity to, to help someone in our community or at our workplace or wherever we play, like we need to be open-handed with that stuff. And the problem is we have a tendency to be inward focused. We think about all the stuff that we have to do with our time. We think about all the stuff that we have to do with our money and all the stuff that we have to do with that talent. And we need to be people who like the church in Antioch are generous with those things. So be on mission, be Barnabas, and be generous with all that God has given you. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you grateful that you have loved us enough to send Jesus to die on the cross for us. And we're grateful that we have this promise that you will be with us in all things, in all places. And Lord, as we go out from here, I pray that we would be thinking about what you have called us to specifically uh, in your mission for your church. Lord, what have you called us to specifically so that we can go out from this place and take the message of the gospel with us? And as we go, I pray that you would help us to be like Barnabas. Help us to be people who are encouraging, full of the Holy Spirit, and people that everyone likes to be around because of how much we see your grace in each other's lives. And Lord, help us to be generous. Sometimes when times get tough, we go into fear mode and we try to hold on to everything that you've given us. And so I pray that we would be people who live open-handed with all that we've been given, that we go from this place looking for opportunities to serve with our time, our talent, and our resources. And God, as we go, help us to see the impact that that has on this world and for your kingdom. And I ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.